I want to quickly revisit the idea of what it means to have a biblical worldview and how that will, as I said, serve as a bookend really to this whole entire series. I said back in week three that the word worldview, if you remember, it describes how we think, see, and interact with the world that we live in. How we think, see, and interact with everything in the world that we live in. Right? It's the collection of our beliefs about, about life that, that we all hold on to. And that, that may look different from person to person, but we all have a worldview and we all shape our beliefs about life based upon those things. And those those beliefs determine, as I said, how we see and interpret the world. And so something which, that we shared with you in week three, I don't have it on the slides, but hopefully you'll remember it. I'm going to unpack it quickly for you in a way that I think you'll remember, is that there are things that I think the way we shared with you, the way we see this, is you have a worldview, okay? And, and that is what we understand about the world. And I'm not even saying that it's necessarily uh, the thing that we understand is correct or right, it's just what we understand about the world. And this comes from just a myriad of things, just the, the, our interactions with individuals, the way we see things that happen out in the world, uh, the conversations that we have, our upbringing, all of it. Everything piles into this and, and forms what we understand about the world, and that is our worldview. But then from there, we begin to do some things. We begin to develop some things, and the first thing that we develop is our beliefs, Right? Our beliefs are those things that we declare as true. This thing, from my worldview, I believe it's true. Right? And we hold on to those things as truth, as we should. That's the natural progression of this. So first we have our worldview, then we have our beliefs, and then from there we develop something that's very, very important, and that is our values. And that is what we declare as good. Those things we declare as good from what we believe is true, those are our values. And again, everyone has them, and they all look differently, and they're all based upon your worldview. And you're going to see where this is going if you don't already. But then fourth and final from that, we see our behavior. We develop our behavior, the things that we do out of those truths and out of those the beliefs and values that we hold on to from our worldview. We, we develop our behavior, what we do. Right? And I don't have the time to go back through all that I said back then, but I, I'll tell you that... Every person that is listening to my voice right now, whether you're here or you're on the live stream, every person that hears my voice has a worldview of some sort. Your worldview is the lens through which you see all of life. And here's the thing. You may not even be aware of the lens that you have. You may not know what lens that is, but you are aware of the things that you see through it. Because you have to be. That's how we interact and go about in our daily lives all of the time, making decisions based upon this thing or the other. Those are the things that, that, that we develop through this lens that we hold on to. And those decisions can and, listen, oftentimes do come with consequences when we're looking through the wrong lens, which is why we as a church, as pastors, have put so much emphasis on, on the lens of holiness on having a biblical worldview. When you're using the wrong lens, the decisions that we make oftentimes have disastrous consequences. And that's why it's important for us to hold on to a thoroughly biblical worldview. And a biblical worldview is, is exactly what you probably think it is. It is those, uh, that system of ideas and beliefs that we hold on to, but here's the important part, that we draw from Scripture. They're the ideas and beliefs that we have that we get from this book. 
right? And then from there, as Christians, that's how we interpret the world and we interact with it. We've said through this series that the lens is to be one of holiness, which is why we put so much importance on the spiritual disciplines class. If you came to that, that was the intent that behind all of that was to push you towards this greater pursuit of godliness, if you will, to, to do deep dives into the word daily, to, to, to put emphasis on prayer, to put emphasis on silence and solitude, all of these things to, to try to put emphasis on developing this this lens of holiness, to see the world through the lens of the word of God. This is in large part what this entire series has been about. How we as the church, we as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, how we are to interpret and interact with all that is out there in the world today, be it social mantras or, or philosophies or theories, all of it. How, how do we interpret those things and interact with them? And we are to do that by using a, a biblical worldview. And so the topics that have been covered in this series, like, like politics, abortion, gender and sexual identity, uh, ra- racism, racial reconciliation, all of those things, and the list goes on. We didn't even cover everything that's out there, as you know. We must have a biblical worldview to understand how we should interpret and interact with those things. So church, please hear me, hear my heart when I tell you that that my desire isn't to stand up here and just to tell you those things that we should be uh, against, right? I know the church has developed a bad rap to say like Christians are only known by those things that they're opposed to, the things that they don't like, the things that they're against. That's not my intent. My intent is very much to get to the word of God to, to see the truth that it holds and how we should apply it to our lives as individuals and as a, an entire body of believers. However, before I can do that, before I can, I can get to the thing that is right, I, I feel I must point at the thing that's wrong so that you know there is another worldview today that very much has crept into the church, especially the church in America. And I believe that it very much is a threat to Christians who are not firmly grounded in a proper proper biblical worldview. And as unpopular as it is maybe for me to say this, I'm going to tell you that that worldview is social justice. And I'll unpack this in a moment, so so allow me if you will, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about ideological social justice. And when I say ideological, what I mean is a body of beliefs that guides an individual, or a whole social movement. Right? I want to say that again because I think it's an important distinction. By saying ideological social justice, I mean a body of beliefs that guides an individual or a social movement. Right? And I'm not saying right or left, this or that. I think regardless of, of distilling it down even further, you would agree that we, we see that at play in our world today. But under the banner of justice, social justice focuses on words like like diversity and inclusion and equality. And you might say that those sound like good things. And hear me, you would be right to say that. Those are good things. Those are biblical concepts, absolutely. As Christians, we shouldn't argue over the goodness and rightness and necessity of things like justice and equality, diversity, inclusion. I believe that those are things that our Savior is very much in favor of. God is for those things. 
But that's not the problem. The problem is how those words are being defined and used today. Social justice of today has has drastically changed the meaning of these words, which greatly affects the why and the how it's being practiced. Now, unfortunately, I don't have the time to go into all of what that means or or the history behind it even, the the history behind that worldview. So I'm asking you, if you will, to just trust me, to to trust me when, when I tell you that it goes back nearly 300 years and it very much comes out of the minds of philosophical atheists. Over the years, it has evolved and it has merged into the school of thought known today as critical theory. And I know that this is a bit fragile territory for, for me to walk into. But critical theory, which is, is rooted in things like atheism and postmodern thinking, which means that there is ultimately no authoritative truth. And this includes things like critical race theory and intersectionality, which JT referenced last week. So I want, I want to ask you, if, if all of that is true, I, I want you to ask yourself if ideological social justice sounds like something that can be reconciled with Christianity. Or maybe to say it another way that's a little bit more simple, does it sound like it is a friend or a foe to the gospel? Because that's really all that I'm interested in asking. That's what I want to know. And in doing so, I don't want you to misunderstand me and think that I'm up here telling you that justice isn't important. Church, no. Justice is of the utmost importance. I am very much for justice. Anyone who knows me well can tell you that my justice scale is, is through the roof. I don't say that braggadociously. It, sometimes I've been told my greatest strength is my greatest weakness. Like I want to fight at times when I shouldn't, but justice is important. It is a biblical principle, a biblical concept. So I believe in justice, but what I want to do with the remainder of our time this morning is to show you what the true definition of justice is and how it's found in God's word alone. I believe that the Bible is entirely sufficient. That means it is enough. It has all that we need. The Bible is entirely sufficient for this topic and every single topic that we will ever encounter in our life. It is the Bible that defines for all people of all times what words like love, truth, and justice actually mean. It didn't just apply back then when those words were written. It applies very much today, and it will absolutely apply to the words, the the days that come in the future. That means that we as Christians absolutely cannot operate with a Jesus plus something else mentality. Things like critical race theory and intersectionality are not necessary or useful analytical tools for the church today. And if you don't know what that means, then, then just keep, stay with me and just like move on past that. But these are conversations and words that are being saying, said within our own tribe, if you will. I'm telling you that the word is enough. The word of God is all that we need. So let's look to it. Psalm chapter 45. Psalm chapter 45. It's only going to be two verses, which is shorter than than what we normally cover. Verses 6 and and 7a. And I'll tell you, if if you haven't been here before, at Freshwater, we like to preach in an expository manner where we go book by book, verse by verse, and we like to unpack everything that's found in the Word of God. This series has been a bit more topical in nature 
But we've still been preaching these topics in an expository manner where we go into the text and we exegete. That means we find the meaning in the words. And that's absolutely my intent this morning. But let's read Psalm chapter 45, verses 6 and 7a. This is the reading of God's word. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. <clears throat> so, this passage is speaking, if you don't know, it's speaking of Jesus, right? We're in the Old Testament, but this passage is still speaking of Jesus, being the one who is seated as Lord on his throne. And it describes what I guess I would call like the divine ideals of the reign of a king. This is what a king who reigns which is in this case our sovereign savior. This, he reigns, and how does he reign? There's some words that are given to us that should help us kind of paint a picture, if you will. With a scepter of uprightness. So what does that mean? Let's go through a couple of these words. Scepter first. All right, could also be seen as a rod or a staff. And this is something that a king very much would have in his possession, would hold in his hand. And it symbolizes a couple of things. It symbolizes, first and foremost, thinking of it as a rod or a staff, that the king is seen as a shepherd amongst his people. The king is a shepherd. He isn't distant, disconnected. He is, he's amongst his people, serving as a shepherd of his people. But it's not only that. It's also a symbol of might and power and authority. So the king has all power, all authority, and in this case, unbridled, unchallenged power and authority because it is Jesus Christ who holds it. It was also commonly known to be carried into battle uh, to be used as a weapon by a king. <clears throat> and so I say all of this just to help you kind of get some some, some imagery, if you will, about this symbol of Jesus holding a scepter. What does it mean? What does it signify? Or, but it's not just a scepter. It's a scepter of what? Uprightness. This word uprightness is, is really uh, critical to this passage of Scripture, uh, especially in reference to, to the, the topic of this sermon. Uprightness means justice. Now, uprightness in this passage of Scripture comes from the word mishor, which means a high-level ground. And so the imagery is this elevated, flat-level piece of ground served as home. Right? There was, there was protection there. There was, there was advantage there because you could see everyone who was coming. It was a place of safety and comfort and even prosperity because it was free from all obstacles. As I said, the word means justice. The word most commonly used, if, if you've heard it before, I only say it because the word most commonly used in Scripture for justice is mishpat, but the word used here in this particular passage of Scripture is mishor, and it's used with the same meaning. It means the same thing. It's just merely a, a more figurative way to signify justice. But, but hear me when I say it carries the same meaning. 
So Jesus has a scepter, right? So remember, might, power, authority, shepherd, warrior, a scepter of uprightness, justice. The verse goes on to say, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This word righteousness, again, comes from another Hebrew word, uh, which is sedek. And it means that which is right, just, and normal. And it carries the same idea as weights and measures. Think of a scale, if you will. Justice oftentimes in the scriptures are referred to as a scale or a balance. Right? Because this is how many of the transactions were done in the time that these words were written. Right? Financial transactions, paying someone or being paid, oftentimes was done by the use of a scale so that you could keep it balanced and fair and just and right. And so that's, that's the idea, that's the imagery that this is carrying. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 11 says, A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. So this makes it clear that justice, hear me, justice, true justice is maintained by God and no other. And the point is this, in all of this passage of scripture, the point is this, that it is Jesus, our Savior, who rules with complete authority, power, and justice, because listen, that is the very nature and character of God. And Jesus is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. So Jesus holds on to all of these things. That makes him our sole source and model for justice. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, God is the lawful monarch of all things. His rule is founded in right. Its law is right. Its result is right. Our king is no usurper and no oppressor. Even when he shall break his enemies with a rod of iron, he will do no man wrong. His vengeance and his grace are both in conformity with his justice. So in this passage of scripture that we're looking at, <clears throat> it is God the Father who says to the Son, your throne, your throne of justice will last forever. This same passage of scripture is quoted later on in Hebrews, the first chapter, verses 8 and 9. And I believe that it's done so to prove a point, to prove that Jesus is God and he, ha he has a more excellent name than all of the angels. Therefore, it is Jesus who determines from his own authority what is just. Let me say that again. It is Jesus alone who determines from his own authority what is just. So I quickly want to point out, I want you to notice two things in this passage of Scripture that we've already, I've already alluded to. And that is the, the eternity of, of Jesus' just and good reign. The eternality of it, that it, it, it will continue throughout the earth, throughout uh, all ages of all time. As I said before, past, present, and future. His reign, his just reign, will continue always. Even when in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it says that, that Christ will deliver the kingdom over to God the Father. Even then it says that his rule, his reign, the throne of our Redeemer will continue. Jesus' reign of justice is eternal. 
And he doesn't need us to add anything to it. The second thing is, is the fairness of his reign, the fairness of, of his administration, if you will. That it is according to the will of God. And it is the will of God which is the eternal rule and even reasoning of good and evil. It's how we know these things. And we can't say that because of the changes that we've seen take place in the world, right? The, the, the old and antiquated beliefs and convictions of our forefathers, right? That they just, they didn't know the things that we know today, right? That we, we have much more enlightenment today. We know things that they didn't know. They couldn't possibly understand. It's not their fault. They just didn't know, but we know them today. And so we reshape our convictions. We reshape our beliefs based on, on those supposed realizations. C.S. Lewis had a, a, a phrase for that. In just typical C.S. Lewis fashion, he referred to it as chronological snobbery. Right? That we would be so proud and so arrogant as to think that our forefathers, the people who came before us, that they just, especially in reference to the word of God, like, well, they just didn't understand. There were just things that they didn't know. They didn't have the science that we have today. And that's true. But it doesn't make it any less true for them in their day. Lewis defined it this way. He said that uh, chronological snobbery is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. So church, I'm here this morning to tell you that God's word is unchanging. It doesn't change. Not only that, it is authoritative. You must live your life by its standards. Not only that, it is inerrant. It is without error or flaw. It is eternally sufficient for every age. Every age. And this is where I really get to the point of what I want to share with you this morning. I believe in my heart of hearts that this is where true justice exists. Justice comes from the Latin word justus, which means straight, and it refers to a standard of morality. Now, that's important because I believe that all morality comes directly from God. And only from God in his law. He is the one true and righteous judge, and his justice is rooted in his very character. And so, church, hear me. That means something very important that we, we need to not miss this morning. Justice, real biblical justice, is obedience to the law of God. Now, we can have all kinds of conversations, what that looks like, what that means, what that feels like in our, in our day-to-day lives. And I wish we had the time to get into that this morning, and we just don't. So those are conversations that we can have at a later time. But just know that... that True justice is obedience to the law of God. It also means that justice exists separate from man-made systems and our own beliefs about what we think is good and right. So that, that means simply this. God's justice, in defining it, he doesn't need our help. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our new enlightened understandings of how this should be applied in life. He, he doesn't need any of it. 
God is the higher law. God is, is the higher law. And, and without God's higher law, listen, justice is unjustifiable. Justice isn't justice apart from God's law. So biblical justice is this. It is conformity to God's moral law. His moral law, which is revealed in the Ten Commandments. Yes, I know it's in the Old Testament. We still abide by it. Amen? We do not unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Jesus is in the Old Testament. Not only that, he, he didn't say that he came to do away with it. He came to fulfill it, not abolish it. So we are still held accountable by God's law, which in the simplest of forms is the Ten Commandments. But not only that, also in the book of James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, James chapter 2, verse 8 Something that he refers to, you'll be much, uh, very, very familiar with as the royal law, which is very simply just to love your neighbor as yourself. It is living in right relationship with God and with others. That, that is biblical justice. And again, I know that means a lot, but giving people their due as image bearers of God, the imago Dei, the image of God is planted in the life of every individual on the earth, even those who hate God, still hold the image of God with inside of them. And so I'm telling you, I'm telling me, that to do biblical justice is to abide by God's law, which is to follow his commands, but it is also to love image bearers of God, which is everyone. Concerning social justice, it, it seems to me, this is going to, 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 to be kind of on the extreme end of things, but it, it seems to me that there are some who think that if, if you don't support social justice, then you must not care about things like racism, sexual assault, inequality, or loving your neighbor. And then on the flip side, I think there are others who would say that if you say a positive word about social justice, then they might assume that you, you fully support Black Lives Matter and you want to defund the police and you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, those are extremes. I don't believe those things are universally true across the board. I, I'm, I'm, I'm using this language intentionally, overgeneralizing to stress my point, which I think you would agree with, is that the term social justice, it doesn't have a clear definition that everyone can agree upon, which is why we're in the mess that we are. I think that, to be fair, when most Christians hear a word like social justice, they assume that it's no different than biblical justice. I, in fact, know this is true because I've seen it online, that social justice and biblical justice are the same thing. And why wouldn't you? I mean, justice is a biblical idea, right? So they, they should be the same thing. I believe that desire that is in you, that's in me, the desire to do justice, to love others, to serve others, I believe that desire within us is from God. But I think it is vitally important that we don't separate that from righteousness. Right? There's more than 30 examples in Scripture. I'm only going to give you four. There's more than 30 examples in Scripture of how righteousness and justice are used interchangeably in the same conversation. 
You cannot have justice without righteousness. Genesis chapter 18, verses 19. It says, For I have chosen him, meaning Abraham, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by this, doing righteousness and justice. Or Psalm 97, verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Or another, Psalm 103, verse 6. Very simply put, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And then the last one, Proverbs Chapter 8, verse 20. I know I'm going through these quick. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice. So the similarity of these words and them being used together and and their their centrality, I think, to, to God's nature are seen so clearly. They're seen so clearly in the one who sits on the throne, the one who reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one true and righteous judge. Justice stems from him, and his name is Jesus. Our Lord is both righteous and just. So that means, very simply, if if Jesus isn't righteous, then he isn't just. And if he isn't just, then, then he isn't righteous. And I don't think that that any of us would would dare say that either one of those aren't true, that he is absolutely both of those things. And hear me, it it is Jesus and and not the the ever-changing opinions of those who think that they're in power. It is Jesus who serves as the scale by which we measure all claims of justice. So let me show you quickly what that looks like. Do you know that absolutely everything that we believe and hold on to, everything I think can be reduced down to three questions. The first question is, what is ultimate? All right, what is, what is ultimate? What is the highest truth? What is the greatest good? What, what is the mightiest authority? What is ultimate? The second question is, how do we know what we know? Right? Things pertaining to life and relationships and justice and sin and on and on and on. How do we know what we know about those things? And then the third question is, who gets to decide what's right and wrong? Right, so what is ultimate? How do we know what we know? And who decides what's right and wrong? Those three questions all have the same answer, church, and you know what it is. What is it? Yeah, Jesus. I'll take Jesus or God, either one of those, right? All three of those questions have the same answer. All other, hear me, all other philosophies and religions of the world answer those three questions wrong. All of them. As I've said 
already the, the theory of social justice that stems out of atheism. And it is atheism that says there is no God. Therefore, if, if God isn't there, if he isn't real, then he isn't authority over what we know and how we know it. And it also means that he isn't the ultimate source of, of what is right and wrong. So that leaves us in a bit of a mess, does it not? Because it leaves us alone to figure things out on our own. And I, for one, do not want that responsibility. Figuring things out on our own inevitably leads us to relative thinking and postmodern thinking. Again, there's no, there's no absolute truth. There's no ultimate source of authority. And we end up serving as our own final authority. So ideological social justice, it, hear me, this, it undermines the very foundation of a biblical worldview. But to be fair, to be gracious, I'm not suggesting that everyone who supports social justice is running around touting atheism. I know that's not true. And I think, again, that desire within you to do social justice is put there by God. I know that there are Christians out there and to probably right here who mean well and simply just want to do justice and love kindness, but probably haven't known the things that I'm saying here today, or maybe just disagree. But in pursuing that desire within social justice, I think that Christians have come to accept ideas that are contra-biblical. They, they are, a, are very different, anti-biblical. Ideas like intersectionality or abortion in the name of women's health, things that we've already covered here in this series, or even to suggest that gender is merely a social construct. Church, I'm just going to tell you unapologetically, those are lies. They do not fall in line with the word of God. This is why there must be, which is what I'm doing now, there must be a call for the church to recover a robust biblical worldview that will not only reject these ideological social justice theories, but also just as important to emphasize true biblical justice by engaging the culture and trying to bring about transformation through the power of the gospel. So church, hear me. I'm not letting us off the hook just by saying you shouldn't hold the social justice. We have to hold to biblical justice, which requires action. We can't just sit on our hands and do nothing and just say we're going to pray for the world. The world needs the message that we have. So we can't simply just be anti-social justice. We must have, we must have a pro-biblical worldview. And this means Yes, and amen, faithfully preaching the gospel, but it also means calling Christians to faithfully engage the needs of the culture. Poverty, homelessness, the list goes on, you know it. In a book that I read in preparation for this message, uh, the, the title, I'm aware, is, is a bit, uh, uh, how, how would I say, um, Volatile, but uh, 
a man by the name of David Allen who wrote in his book titled, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, he said this regarding what I just suggested. <clears throat> he said that Christians must recognize and reject the counterfeit. That's, that's what I've, I've attempted to do. We must remember what true justice is. We must hold fast to that truth, no matter how unpopular it becomes. We must speak it out. We must demonstrate it. We must be the salt and light that Jesus commands us to be. So church, we have to engage in biblical justice because the biblical worldview sees this world as belonging to the Lord. The biblical world says all of this is God's, and he loves his creation. He said it is good. As distorted and perverted and twisted as it has become, it is still his, and he still loves it. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just to save human souls from hell. It absolutely did that. I will preach that until the day I die. But that's not all it does. It also redeems all things that are broken through the fall of sin. Right? God redeems us as fallen sinners. He redeems us back unto himself. Yes, preventing our souls from being destined to hell, which I believe absolutely upon the word of God is a literal place that exists but he's redeemed us to participate with him in reconciling all things to himself. Church, what an amazing honor that is. Right? Because understand, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything that we offer. But yet, he calls on us to join him in reconciling all things back unto himself through the power of his word. What an amazing honor. What, a, what an unspeakable privilege to know that we are to engage in culture as ambassadors for Christ's kingdom. You understand that word ambassador? That means back in the day when that was a thing, that means that person spoke on the literal behalf of the king. Whatever I said as ambassador was exactly the same thing as what the king said. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ, to engage in culture. We are to work in the power of God's spirit to bring truth, goodness, and beauty to every domain of human existence. Every domain. Government, teaching, the economy, the market, all of it. All of it. We are, we are called to enter into that through the power of God's spirit to bring truth. And, and I'm, I'm a firm believer, and you may disagree with this, but the best society that could possibly exist is a Christian one. The best society that could ever exist is a Christian one. I didn't say perfect. So how do we respond? Quickly, there are a few responses that I'm going to share that I think aren't helpful, right? which we may have been guilty of doing. One is to use power tactics to try to shout down other people or groups of people. Right? Whether this is done in really ungracious arguments in person or really passive-aggressive attacks on social media. Church, please don't do this. 
don't engage in this because I can promise you it isn't Christ-like and therefore it does not honor the Lord in any way. A second response is to just stick your head in the sand and pretend like it either isn't happening or it isn't as bad as people are saying it is. I think this is equally destructive because I believe that the, the situation that we are in today with all of these uh, things that are, are running amok in society, all of the societal issues that we are facing today is a direct result of the church sitting silently on its hands on the sidelines doing nothing for far too long. We haven't spoken out in ways that we should have against injustices like abortion. Right? It's just out of sight and out of mind. If I were to be asked what I think of it, I think it's bad. But what am I doing to, to engage in that? Nothing. I'll admit, I'm talking about me right now. Nothing. I've done nothing. We can't do it anymore. Biblical, biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, and the world whole by upholding goodness and impartiality. Goodness and impartiality. Agree with me if you want, but I, from what I see, I see a whole lot of partiality taking place under things called social justice. And I'm not, listen, I'm not saying there aren't imbalances or injustices that exist. I know racism is real. But that doesn't mean that we ought to engage in acts of partiality because Jesus spoke about the sin of partiality and he did not have anything positive to say about it. So did Paul. Peter was guilty of it. So biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, and the world whole by upholding goodness and impartiality. I believe that's at the center of the true religion that James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, talked about, right? James chapter 1, verse 27, he says, the kind of religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Another passage of scripture in the Old Testament, Proverbs 29, verse 7, says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. So it should go without saying, church, that the pursuit of biblical justice as a gospel mandate, I'm telling you, it's a gospel mandate. We must be about it. The pursuit of that applies to every Christian everywhere, whether individually or corporately as a whole body. So quickly, what do we do? I'm just about done. But what do we do? How, how, how do we respond? How do we, how do we begin to take steps in this? A couple of things that I think address where we are now, even though that's there's probably a great deal of variety amongst everyone in here as to where you feel like you are in this conversation. But what we absolutely must do and always do is pray. I know it sounds cliche, but it's so true. We must pray, but we must pray with intentionality, right? Pray for truth. Pray for wisdom. Pray for grace. Pray for those who have opposing views. Pray for those who hate your worldview. Pray for them. Pray for yourself. 
Pray for this church. Pray for this country and our leaders. I'll, I'll, I'll confess, one of the things that I hadn't done up until just this last year was very sincerely praying for our country and our leaders. Praying that God would bring us to our knees in repentance, in confession and in repentance. And from that act, that the Lord would bring revival to our country. And listen, I'm the least charismatic person that you will know in this building. And I'm praying for revival. So pray. The second thing we can do is to know and speak the truth in love. It's so seldom that we do both of those things well together, but I'm telling you to know and speak the truth in love and unapologetically. Don't, don't apologize for it. That doesn't give you a right to be a jerk for Jesus. So I emphasize truth in love. And not only to speak it, but to know it. Get in the word. Know what it says. Apply it to your own life. And until you do, keep your mouth shut. Number three, be gracious and give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't pigeonhole them. Don't paint them into a corner. Don't call them all of these names that you think they are, whether it's Karen or cultural Marxist or whatever else. Avoid that. It's not healthy. It's not profitable to the conversation at all. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Give people an opportunity to, to, to plead their case. And I mean listen. Don't be waiting, like formulating a response in your mind as the person is speaking to you. Hear what they're saying. And then when you get the opportunity, share and hope for the same from them. The fifth is to step out and to stand firm calling us to action. Six is to strive for love always. Always strive for love. Always. I'm not done. And peace whenever possible. I told you in week three that I will fight tooth and nail for peace and unity, but I will not do it at the sake of truth. I will not give up truth for unity, because the truth is, without truth, you don't have unity. So strive for love always and peace when possible. Last one is to trust the Lord and do not fear. I don't know what's coming, church, but don't be afraid. God is still very much on his throne, and he is sovereign. That means he rules over everything without any kind of opposition or being contested. So I'll finish with this. We can, we can trust that the same God who acted in just and mercy at the cross will also be with us as we seek to pursue and to promote his justice for his glory. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 say this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That means God has the final say. And I promise you that his will, his way will be accomplished no matter what. So we trust in that. That verse tells us that God is enough. God is more than enough. I know I haven't gotten into the specifics of of exactly what biblical justice looks like. I've been dealing with it up here, 40,000 foot view in terms of love and, and engaging in the culture. I know that there are other conversations that go along with this. I realize that there are some areas of this topic that haven't been addressed today. So I'm just gonna say, if you feel the need to talk about this, what does this look like? Or to ask questions, then I'm available. JT's available. We as pastors, your deacons, like your, your life group leaders. But just know that this verse tells us that God is enough. And the reason I say that is, is that some, there are some professing Christians out there, and this isn't an attack, this is just the truth. There are professing Christians out there that advocate that the gospel alone is not enough. I had a quote that I was going to share with you, but for the sake of time, I took it out. It's lengthy in ways, in reading it, that I I started to almost get angry inside because I thought, no, that's not true. The word of God is enough. God is unchanging. He is enough. We don't need Jesus plus whatever. There are Christians who say that we need added laws and governments and even reparations, for example, to step in and do what the gospel never could do and never intended to do. And with this church, we must wholeheartedly reject that kind of thinking. The gospel is the good news that Christ has paid the debt for your sin, a debt that that you could never pay. And in doing so, listen, he reconciled all things unto himself. He said on the cross that it is finished. The work has been done. That doesn't mean that injustice doesn't still exist in the world. It does. But, but the Lord is sovereign. And our Savior said, it is finished. It is accomplished. He's done all of the hard work that has to be done. Now, the onus is on us to, to respond to the call. To step up and to step out. But you cannot do that. If the faith that that you claim to have is not a faith that you own, meaning that you know it, right? If you're just Christian in name only, then you won't be able to to do these things that, that I'm calling all of us to do, myself included. Understand, I'm not excluding myself from that that call. So for starters, I would say if, if there's anyone here who, who doesn't know Christ, then today's the day to respond. If you claim to be in Christ, but these words that I've said here today has, have struck a chord with you, then respond, whether in your seat or I'm going to be over here with some others. If you need to, to talk or to pray, then that time is, is, is available for you. Respond. Ask for the Lord, ask for the Holy Spirit to come and to work and to stir things up inside of you. If you feel like you have been complacent, lackadaisical, 
Ask for the Lord to do that work in your heart today, and he will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you so much. Lord, that first and foremost, you are sovereign. God, there's nothing that happens in this world or in our lives that that you're unprepared for. That you still very much are are seated upon your throne. Lord, we thank you for your good word that tells us these things are true and that we can rest upon them, that you've given us a revelation of yourself to us, Lord, so that we might know you. And so I, I pray, Father, that in all of this, you, you, you will have received glory. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that they will, they will let go of whatever is preventing them from coming to know you, that, that you would do a work in their heart that would cause them to want to respond to you, to, to let go of, of the pride or the fear of embarrassment that might be standing in the way, and that they'll just simply respond to you in desperation. And Father, for those of us who, who claim Christ as our Savior, Lord, if, if we haven't been living and measuring up to these words that I've shared this morning, that you would put a burden within our hearts to respond, to have a desire to be the ambassadors of Christ that we're called to be, to engage in the world for your good, for your glory, with your truth, what, what the word says is your justice, that we would be all about biblical justice. Father, the, the goal today was, was not criticize social justice, that the, the goal today was to emphasize your biblical justice. That's what I want us as a church body to be about. That's all that matters, that we would be about your truth, to carry that out into the world that is lost and dying and, and hurting. To think and consider that, that, that Father, like, Things like foster care and, and homelessness and, and homeless shelters, Lord, those things ought to not exist in, in the, the way that they do because the church should have stepped up and, and taken the lead in those things, and we have not. We have failed. So God, help us to be about the things that your word calls us to be about I pray, lastly, Lord, that these words that I've shared today will not serve as a means to to draw further lines of, of, of separation or division, but that it would draw us together in unity. That if we need to continue to have a conversation moving forward as to what this looks like, specifically within freshwater, that you would lead us with that. You would give us wisdom in that. I love this church, Lord. Father, I thank you so much your presence amongst us. I pray, Lord, that you will have received glory and honor from all that has been said and done here. Lord, the prayers that we pray, the words that we speak, and the songs that we sing, they would be a a fragrant aroma to you, Lord, as we offer them up to you. We love you. We thank you. I ask that your Holy Spirit would come and move amongst us now, Lord. In Christ's name, I ask all this. Amen.
church stand and, and sing. And if you need prayer, as I said, we'll, we'll be over here to the side.